Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Today's episode is a dedicated episode to the last entry of the logbook of the whaler, the Swan of Hull. Those of you who are regular listeners will know that we have been reading extracts from her logbook at the start of each episode just with the exception of the iconic ships episodes and the Great Sea Fights series. These readings come from a transcription of the logbook held in the archives of the Caird Library at the National Maritime Museum in London. The transcription was made especially for this podcast, and so you, the listeners, were the first ever to hear these words read aloud. That made this podcast itself a little piece of maritime history. We began her story in October uh, on exactly the same day that she became stuck in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in 1836. And we have followed it through to now, to the middle of April, which is when her logbook ends. The last we heard, they had just recovered their crew members from their failed attempt to secure help from land. Daniel Knight, one of the few men who survived the attempt to reach land, is seriously injured It's been a truly terrible week and they are being teased by ice breaking all around them though their ship is still beset and scurvy is now killing the crew fast. Wednesday 12th of April. First part of this day commences with strong breezes, the ship drifting past another berg within five minutes walk of us. Latter part light winds, the waves of water being skimmed over with bay ice. Thermometer 10 below zero. Daniel Knight's leg amputated this morning. Thursday, 13th of April. Light winds and clear weather, the ship being quite stationary. Middle and latter part light breezes, ship driving north. Our situation and prospects compel us to diminish our weekly allowance of bread half a pound. Yet so blind were some of our men to their own interest that this prudent measure was regarded by them with dissatisfaction and they had that stupidity and unthoughtfulness to ask for more. Daniel Knight, whose leg was amputated yesterday morning, is doing well, but the chance of saving the other is very little, the inflammation extending itself very fast. Latitude by observation, 70 degrees by 12 north. Sunday, 17th of April. Strong breezes and fine clear weather, the ship drifting off to the westward. 
A great lane of water has broken out south of us, but the ice in which we are froze up is quite stationary. Latitude by observation 70 degrees by 13 north. Tuesday, 18th of April. Light breezes and fine clear weather. A 270-gallon shake cut up this day for fuel. A few minutes before 12 this night, Lawrence Duncan, Shetlander, expired having lingered a long time in a complete state of debility. Latitude by observation 70 degrees by 12 north. Wednesday the 19th of April. Light breezes and fine clear weather. A 260-gallon shake number 41 caught up for fuel. Average of thermometer 20 degrees. At 8am, Daniel Knight's remaining leg was amputated, there being no chance of saving any part of the foot. This afternoon, James Jamerton, Shetlander, died in the last stage of scurvy. Thermometer 26. Thursday, 20th of April. Light winds and fine warm weather. At noon, called all hands and interred our poor shipmates. Middle and latter parts fine weather. The carpenter employed in making a jib boom. A 260-gallon shake cut up for fuel. Friday the 21st of April. Light winds, fine weather, the ship driving north very slowly. This afternoon Robert Brady, seaman, died of scurvy and such was the filthy state of his bedclothes that they were thrown overboard. That was the very last entry for the logbook and little is known about what happened next. What we do know is that she finally escaped the ice and fell in with a fleet of whale ships that spring. Ten sailors were put on board her to navigate her home, along with fresh provisions. From her original complement of between 50 and 60 men, including some of a wrecked ship whom she had taken on board the previous summer, only 17 were alive when she reached Lerwick. And she finally made it back to Hull in July 1837, long after she had been given up for lost. We know that some of the men actually held out until they sighted land and died only then. One sailor who heard of this wrote, I knew two men of her crew very well. Smart fellows they were and good seamen, and they both died just within sight of home. I have sometimes wondered at it, and I never could well make it out. Why, after holding out so long, they gave in then? Perhaps hope kept them up, and then, when their desire was like to be fulfilled, it was too much for them, and they so weak. We're pleased to have finished reading this logbook, and we'll certainly bring you more historical sources over the coming weeks. Before we go, we've had some fascinating queries posted on our free forum. You can find it at snr.org.uk. That's the website of the Society for Nautical Research. From Kevin Stall, we've had this query about navigation. When working on a master's, I took a class on early Alaskan history. I was fortunate to find a record of the daily noon sightings, and at the time I was working with a lat long on AutoCAD. I plotted the entire trip and found a few strange entries. A few of the positions were impossible. We knew exactly where she was on several of these occasions. The ship was anchored in the Bay of Kayak Island, 
but on her second day, the noon sighting placed her sixty miles inland. On another occasion, the sighting showed the ship on the other side of the Aleutian Islands. The ship, Saint Peter, never went to the north of the Aleutians chain. I know that errors are common in sextants, but when the ship is anchored in the same bay for three days, and the second sighting shows them sixty miles inland, but the third one shows the correct location, why would a captain record such an obvious error? Does anyone have any ideas?、Mm, that's an absolutely great question. I love that. Uh, another from Jane Wickenden. I'm researching a surgeon in the Royal Navy on the West Africa station、uh, between January and June 1845. How was his will deposited with his nephew's law firm in Adelaide, South Australia, in mid-May 1845? His service record does not indicate that he was ever on the Australian station. I'm assuming he wrote a new will when the news of his mother's death on the 11th of December 1844 reached him. I've read Brian Vale's article, "The Post Office: The Admiralty and Letters to Sailors in the Napoleonic Wars." New South Wales and Tasmania were on the packet ship route by 1835, but not South Australia, as far as I can see. An interesting one there from Jane about post reaching Australia. And finally, a query from David Manley in response to our recent podcast episode on the various sinkings during the Falklands War. David writes, and this is just in part, as someone with deep interest in the Falklands campaign for forty years and in a professional capacity for over thirty, I was keen to see what Paul had uncovered through his extensive use of freedom of information requests, and I was not disappointed. It is an excellent piece of work. The chapter on the loss of Sheffield was of particular interest. I was pleased to see reference to the MOD paper that re-evaluated the loss of Sheffield, but surprised to see the re-evaluation result that the Exocet warhead most likely did detonate as being in doubt. Now David goes on to conclude with the benefit of modern verified and validated analysis codes, coupled with trials and operational evidence that was not available to the Board of Inquiry at the time. A very strong case, supported by technical peer review, was made that the exocet that hit Sheffield did indeed detonate as designed, and indeed that is now the line that is briefed in the Royal Navy's Command Warfare Course and the Ministry of Defence's various survivability courses to designers and planners in the MOD. And UK industry, more fascinating stuff there.、Um, do please also enjoy everything else we have to offer on the Society for Nautical Research's website at snr.org.uk, including、um, well over a century. Of、uh, articles from the Mariner's Mirror Journal. Do please find us on social media. Please follow us. Please leave a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference to the popularity of the podcast. But best of all, please do join the Society for Nautical Research, and your subscription fee will go towards publishing the latest and the most important maritime history, and towards helping to preserve our maritime heritage. <laughs>